joining with us. We thank God for the word of God. We thank God for the worship as well. Um, I'm particularly excited to jump back into Acts this week as we took a bit of a break last week um, in order to um, give us a refresher and a reminder about the necessity it is for the Christian to have and maintain the joy um, that God has given us through the Holy Spirit to find that true and lasting contentment even in the midst of what seems to be, to be quite a difficult year. Um, so it was a privilege and a blessing last week to take a break off, but we are particularly excited to return back this week to our journey through the book of Acts. Now, as we are going through, I mentioned at one point before that Paul has essentially taken over as the main character in the book of Acts. And the reason why that is so essential to us is because as he's taken over as the main character, so many of the things that he is going to deal with, particularly in his life, are so essential to us because we're going to notice that many of the things that Paul goes through in his life, they're going to be emblematic of the things that we all go through as well as Christians. Prior to Paul's conversion, we've talked about it before, he is a hater of everything that represents the true God of the Bible. So were we. Prior to him, him coming to Christ, he seeks to destroy everything in terms of Christianity and everything that it represents, and so did we. And finally, when Jesus comes to him face to face and he comes face to face for the first time with his sins, he has the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and he is converted on the road to Damascus. And my hope is that that is a testimony for all of us that we have come face to face with the reality of our sins and that Jesus Christ has converted us. Now, we all probably share more in common with the life of Paul than perhaps anybody else. Now, as Christians, we often say things that seem sincere. They seem genuine. There are these colloquialisms that we have, specifically in church, church speak, where we say things like, come as you are. And it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you, where you, what you've been through. Um, we say, just come and we'll, we'll offer you love and support. But the unfortunate reality is that many times the very things that we say we are going to do as far as welcoming people in to the church, regardless of their history, regardless of their past, we don't do it. It's all really easy for us to say but it's really easy until we come in face-to-face -face contact with someone who has claimed to be changed, who has claimed to be saved, but that person committed a great offense against us personally. Now, we will all say, come and we'll give you a welcome with love and support and hugs and all this, but let's be honest, Many times when we see people who say they have come to Christ, immediately, if we know that person and we know their past and we know their history, specifically if it has affected us, 
they are often met, instead of being met with warmth and love and gratitude, they are often met with dismissive glances and stares of disbelief. Like, yes, I know that God saved me, but there is no way God saved you. Hopefully what we look at today will allow us to combat the reality on two folds that one, we all have very public past. We all have people who, though we have been legitimately converted, when they hear our name, it still arouses in them the feelings of anger and hurt and whatever else we cause them based on the lives that we formerly lived. So one of the things that I want to do today is if that is you, if you are wrestling with people who still hold you accountable to the life that you formerly lived, I pray that in this sermon you will have freedom. You will find the freedom in the truth that while they may hold you accountable to the past offenses, God does not. But also, many of us have also been on the other side of the coin where we're the ones who are evoking the responses to people who come in who do have past, who are looking to be changed and to be seen as changed as well. So, one, we need to have the trust and hope in God that if he has changed us, that that also changes the way he views us, even if it doesn't change the way other people view us. But also, if there are people who have been changed and we are Christians, not only does it change the way God views them, but for us, it should change the way that we view them as well. So I hope that that is what we all gather from today's sermon. So jump with me, if you will, back to Acts. We're going to Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And it's again Luke writing here and says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted, Paul, to, do, to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Let's pray. Brother God, we thank you for one more time that we get to share in the word of God. We thank you for another opportunity, God, to learn such rich truths, God, that are going to apply to us as born-again believers personally, but also, God, to people who we welcome into the fold. So I pray that in today's sermon, God, that you will reveal the truth of how we should see ourselves as Christians, God, but also the truth of what the Bible says about how we should view other people in the body of Christ as well. 
It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, after Paul had finally returned to Jerusalem, I think we would all like to think that he was received with open arms. But let's be honest. Not only do we know how egregious the past actions of Paul were, let's be real honest people. We also know church people. We know that no matter how much many of us can display that we have changed, there are always people in the even in the congregation of believers who will never change the way that they perceive us because of their own carnality. Not only do we know how egregious his past was, but we also know that according to what we talked about in the change sermon, that Paul has been away for three years. So in a matter of three years, they have not heard from Paul. They have not even seen Paul. So I can imagine that their skepticism only grew because even though they had probably received word that Paul had been converted, it had been a great amount of time between that conversion and them actually seeing him. So I would think it would make sense that if we haven't seen him and the last time we saw him, what was he doing? He was gathering the coats for the people who were stoning Stephen. And so in three years time, we have not heard or seen this man. Only have we gotten word that perhaps he had been converted. And so when they see him after he had been in Arabia for three years, after he had visited the apostles, there is a great deal of fear among them that he is pretending to be a Christian. Now, they know Paul well enough to know that he was militaristic in his behavior prior to his conversion. So they're thinking this is some strategic attempt by Paul to infiltrate our Christian faith and attack us from within. And so when he comes to them, they are afraid of him. It says that the disciples attempted to join with them and they didn't want him to join. Now, we would probably say that knowing the history of Paul's past, that perhaps they had the right to be skeptical about his conversion. After all, we have seen no one be more violent towards the Christian faith other than Paul. They had every right to be skeptical. But let me be clear, and I've mentioned this before. None of the us have that right. Not a single one of us has the right to be skeptical towards anybody who comes to Christ as if their sins are any worse than our sins. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. It is not any other person that I greatly could ever doubt be saved. You know whose salvation I doubt the most? My own. Because I know my own heart, I know my own wickedness more than anybody else's. So even the very idea that I would question the legitimacy of someone's salvation based on their prior life would say that I'm self-righteous. 
Because if I don't doubt my own salvation based on my present sin, how could I doubt anybody else's based on their former sins? Listen, if we really be honest, because we all have come in contact with people who we thought, surely, surely Bob ain't got saved. Not Jimbo from the brickyard. You talking about from Loving Village? No, they ain't got saved. Not Ray that used to go to Huffman. Not. But then you realize that if you have that skepticism about anybody else, then you are denying the saving grace and power of Jesus Christ. And even if we thought that we had that right towards anybody, we have never encountered a person with a life and a history as egregious as the one as Paul had. None of us has that right. So he attempts to join the disciples and they reject him. But I want to be clear about whose rejection that is. This is not the apostles. Remember, we learn from his own words that Paul went to James and Peter. And not only did they accept him as an actual convert, they also affirmed the revelation that he had received for those three years from God regarding the gospel and the Gentiles. So we know that these are not the apostles that they're talking about. These are other disciples and followers of Christ, perhaps the lay people who would have been the members of the church who he comes to. And they say, no, Paul, you can't come with us. One of the most difficult things that we all have to overcome is not just that we all have a wicked, wicked past. We all have an evil past. But we all have to overcome the publicity of those pasts. We have to overcome the reality that the lives that we formerly lived were not only an offense to God, but they were offense to many people that we know, that we cared about, and that we loved. And while we have absolutely escaped the very perception that God once held to us as sinners, there are many people that we will come in contact with to the day that we die or they die, that they will always see us based on who we were and not who we are. For the Christians in this room, we have all been on both sides of that coin. We have all either been the victims of being unable to escape the perception that somebody had of us or we have been the offender. So this is for all of us in some sort of way. But this is where Christians absolutely need to be diligent and be careful. The Bible tells us that it is Satan who is the accuser. 
It is Satan who knows the very nature of our sins and the lives that we live. And it is Satan who is using what he knows about us as a means to present a case against us for the sins that we were once defined by. So if we are ever the people who are reminding people and others about the sins that someone used to commit in their former life who have now come to Christ, then we are doing the same work as Satan. We are not building the kingdom of God. We are building Satan's kingdom. This sort of behavior to use and uncover past sins in some sort of way to have leverage over other believers is absolutely the work of the wicked one. And if any of us are doing this, this sort of behavior is not just unbecoming of a Christian, it's condemnable. I said this a few weeks ago when we talked about how Paul had changed. When someone says that they have been converted, yes, we want to test that. Yes, we want to try it. But we should never do so in a way that negates that testimony. If that person says that they have been converted, we welcome that person and that testimony of their conversion. Not be skeptical towards it. Certainly, we wouldn't think that someone's past would prevent them from being converted. We certainly don't think that somebody's former sins would serve as a means to invalidate their testimony. Let's go deeper. The Bible says that when we come to Christ, when we actually come to Christ, not This false conversion, but when we actually come to Christ, when we repent and believe the gospel, that all of our sins are totally forgiven. They are forgiven by the Lord himself, which means, although we get eschatology wrong sometimes, it is not the believer who will ever have to stand in front of God to give an account. Why would the believer do that? That's the most embarrassing thing for anybody to do whose sins have already been paid for. The only people who will stand and give an account before the white throne of judgment are those people whose sins are still present and unpaid. For those of us who have been forgiven, there is no account of our sins anymore. There is no record of wrongdoing. God has absolutely forgotten and forsaken the very nature of who we were. Not only that, but the Bible is explicit. It says he throws it into a sea of forgetfulness. He totally blots it out. The Bible says that he remembers our sins no more. Now, when God says that he remembers our sins no more, I want you to understand how God's forgiveness and remembrance all tied together. I like what Tim Keller said. He says, our word for remember is really too shallow of a word 
to describe what God is saying when he says, I remember your sins no more. See, a lot of people have said things like, I forgive, but I can't forget. But the people who say that are saying, I will release you from the burden of whatever you did to me, but I will always hold the perception of you based on what you did, which means I will bring it up. I will say something about it. I may look at you a certain type of way. When God says, I will forgive you, he is not losing memory of our sins, but he's saying, I am forsaking the idea that you are now defined by those sins. You were once defined by those sins, but you are now defined by my son. So when he says that he forgives us, he forsakes the perception that he once held of us. This is the standard of forgiveness. But you notice how that works hand in hand with somebody who has come to Christ that has offended us and we say we have forgiven them. And if we see them come in the church, we're uncomfortable. Not only have you not forgiven them, but you are holding them accountable in a way that God doesn't even hold them accountable. Who do we think we are to think that we can ever fix somebody in any time frame based on how we view them and how they offended us? What if God held us in that same time frame based on the way that we were while we were yet sinning against him and he was hanging on the cross? What if Jesus Christ did call those 10,000? And then for all of eternity, we get stuck in the midst of our sins. He absolutely forsakes the idea that we are defined by our sins. And that is a beautiful thing about our salvation. We were once defined by those sins. That's because they dominated our lives. But he no longer sees our sins. It's his son that he sees. Now, people will hear this and think that I'm preaching free grace and antinomianism. And that means that you can now, because you've had your sins forgiven, once saved, always saved. You can just do whatever you want to do. But that's not the case. Once saved, always saved implies that no matter what I do, I'm still saved. But the Bible says when Paul says, oh, you think that because grace abounds that you can continue in sin, God forbid. Because if you have been made alive to Christ, you have also been made dead to your sins. So you can't be saved and alive in your sins. You must be dead to your sins and alive in Christ. So when the Bible says to us, who can bring a charge against God's elect 
What it essentially means is that if God in all his wisdom and in all his providence and in all his power has freed us from the charges that were once on our account, there is no devil in hell or no person on this earth that can bring a legitimate charge against us. That is how we escape the very real condemnation of those of us, of those around us, that even if they cannot get past our former offenses, God has gotten past them. God has gotten past them. In the midst, however, of this skepticism towards him, Paul receives affirmation in his conversion. And that was through the faithful brother and disciple Barnabas. This is a beautiful happening in the one here who is actually willing to take a stand for his new brother in Christ. And this is what it takes. It takes those of us who not only know the Lord, but also know ourselves to stand up and defend those who may be rejected by those who should otherwise accept them. I do think something strange happens to us when we become Christians and when we've been Christians for a while that we forget that we are just as guilty a sinner as anybody else. The same Savior that others needed, we need as well. We are no better off. And I think if we think we are, then we're self-deceived. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But I like this part right here. Paul says, just in case you forget, and such were some of you but but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God look at what Paul points out here he says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom and then he lists several things some of which we harp on some more than others, but he lists several things here that make a person guilty and prevents them from inheriting the kingdom. But then he says, just in case any of you who are hearing this or reading this letter get too much pride within yourself, don't forget, so were you. Every single one of us. And let's be honest, not any of us just did one of these things. For many of us, there are several things on this list that we can say were found and defined our lives before we came to Christ. He says, but the only reason that none of you are this anymore is because you were washed. You didn't wash yourself. 
It was Jesus Christ who washed you. He says you were sanctified. You weren't capable of sanctifying yourself. It was the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that sanctifies us. He says, and you have been justified. The only person who can declare righteous those of us who are guilty is Jesus Christ. We should not have judgmental or dismissive attitudes toward anybody because we needed the Lord to do for us what he's done for them. I was having a conversation with somebody just this past week. And in that conversation with this person, they mentioned these things that when they were a younger kid, all these things they used to do and fights they used to get into and these squabbles. And this person to me now is the epitome of peace. And I, my mouth was left open. I couldn't believe that you, not you, yeah. But they said this, they said, but that was before I was changed. That was before I was changed. I did used to do that stuff. I did used to live that way. But thanks be to God, I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified. It's not who I am anymore. I also want you to see, though, how beautiful it is what Barnabas does. I don't want to overlook Barnabas. When Barnabas sees the other disciples who are afraid to allow Paul to join in with them, he doesn't join in with what they were doing. No, Barnabas stands out for what he knows is the truth. And the Bible says that he took him and he brought him in. I like the, the phrasing that Luke uses here in the Greek because it's not just saying that he said, oh, let me introduce y'all to Paul. But he actually not only does that, but he accepts Paul as his own disciple. He disciples him and he mentors him. Listen, people, that is what it takes. Even in the midst of people who may be dismissing other people who have come to Christ, we need to be the faithful followers of Christ that will grab people who have been castigated and who have been rejected because of their former lives and bring them alongside with us and say, I know how they're looking at you, but I want to look at you the way that God looks at you. The important, this is an, an important note here because when we have had things in our past that people aren't really sure if we have been freed or delivered from, then it always would take other people, somebody, to legitimize the testimony that we had. We were not saved on an island. When we were saved, he gave us a fellowship and a family. Just as we do not gain freedom from our sin on our own, we do not gain freedom from the false perceptions that people have of us on our own either. It takes faithful members of the body of Christ that says it doesn't matter what other church you went to. It doesn't matter what other group said this about you. We say that we will love you and we will disciple you and we will mentor you. We don't care what your past looks like because we all have one too. 
Now, I know most of y'all know I work in the school, and you're probably generally familiar with this, but I'll go ahead and be the one that confirms it for you. Teachers serve as informants to other teachers about students they have had in the past. I'm just going ahead and break that out for you. And so one of the first things that a teacher does when they get their roster is they go to the teacher that had those students last year and like, all right, they never ask for the good students. Who, who be cutting up in this class? Who, who I don't need to be sitting together? And that teacher will obviously will point out for you a few students, like, oh, yeah, last year he cut up. I had to call mom, do this, do that, do that. And so now, before you have even met these students, what do you have? You already have a perception of that student based on what an old teacher has said about that student. And I'll be honest, I am just as guilty as anybody of doing that. But more often than not, the very children that I was told were terrible, who would be trouble, I have to go back to that teacher and say, listen, I don't know if you were wrong or if they just matured, but what you said about this child, that's not who they are in my class. And so it made me think, even in our relationship with people and Christians as believers, we do not go on the basis of what a person says about somebody until we have had the chance to know that person that we have extended grace and love and patience and long-suffering to that person. But even if that Christian still has a bit of a bad attitude, even if that Christian still has a bit of a foul mouth, if no one has come alongside them, to mentor them and disciple them and say, oh, yeah, we don't talk like that as Christians. We don't act like that as believers. How would you expect, realistically, any sanctification to happen in their lives? I like what happens here is that when Barnabas gets Paul because he had heard his testimony, he then brings him and then he shares Paul's testimony to all these people. And there was something in his testimony that made them realize this man had been changed. You know what it was? It was that Paul went back to all the people that he used to be friends with the people that he had persecuted Christians, the people that he had killed Christians with. And he went to them and he gave them the gospel. That was in his testimony that he didn't let fear stop him from going back. He knew that his life could be lost, but he still went back to the very same people and he shared the gospel with them. He risked his own life for the gospel. And when they hear this, they know no counterfeit would do this. 
No counterfeit ever dies or will risk their life for what they do not believe in. And so he stands up for them in front of the other disciples and then they are convinced that he was changed. But he notes, he says that Paul was going around even after conversion and he was sharing the gospel and preaching boldly to the people that he had once been accepted by because he was living out the new calling in his life. Y'all remember a few weeks ago I said that not only was he changed and converted, but God had given him a new mission and God had given him a new assignment. And when Paul is converted, there is nothing that deters him from that assignment. And as we close, that's the last thing I want to I want you to see. If you are a Christian who is wrestling with people who have a particular perception of who you used to be. Be like Paul. Just work. Just do the work of Christ. Just fulfill the mission and the calling for which he has set before you. I remember in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is serving as the governor and the cupbearer, and he learns that the walls of Judah have not been rebuilt, and he wants to go back and build these walls up. And as he does this, there are several opponents and enemies, two in particular, Tobiah and Samballot, who say to Nehemiah, if a fox runs up the wall, they'll knock it down. And they even write a letter to the people and to the king, spreading all sorts of lies about Nehemiah, things that weren't true. And you know what the Bible says that Nehemiah does? The Bible says, but Nehemiah never came down off of the wall. He never stopped doing the work of the Lord until it was completed because he was so occupied with the work of the Lord. He was not concerned about what the detractors had to say about him. If we as believers are being overwhelmed because there are people who have a certain position and perception and a view about us, perhaps we're not even busy enough to do what we need to do. First Peter, he says that it's the people who aren't doing anything who are the busy bodies in other men's matters. As a Christian, we have too much work to do to be concerned about somebody else's past or what somebody is saying about my own. We completely devote ourselves to and occupy our lives with the work of the Lord. And let's just be clear as we close. I've heard popular preachers say things like, Jesus Christ died for your past. He didn't. He didn't die for your past. The Bible says that he died for your sins. Past, present future. That is why Jesus Christ died. By the grace of God, they are not charged to our account.
the sins of our present are null and void. The sins of our past are forgotten. And it doesn't matter who tries to hold us to the lives that we once formerly lived. If we have been washed, then those sins are gone. We have been justified. We have been sanctified. We have died to those sins and we have been made new in the faith through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you today how you have shown us and reminded us, God, that one, there is nothing if we have been freed, if we have been declared innocent and righteous in your eyes by the Son of, of God. There is nothing that anybody else can do to hold us accountable. We have been freed, God, and the evidence of that freedom now for us is a life devoted to sinning less and doing the work of Christ. But also, God, we know that if the testimony of our lives is that we have been redeemed and we have been changed, that also, God, there is no other person that we will hold accountable. If you have freed them from that account, then, God, we must free them from that perception as well. God, my prayer today is as we leave that we will walk in freedom, God, not bound to people's perception, but are also not holding people to a perception that God is not. That as we have been forgiven, God, that we will forgive. That we will forsake the perception that we once held. And that, God, we will walk alongside your faithful new believers and guide them and lead them and walk with them and disciple them and mentor them. So that inevitably the body of Christ will grow into a healthy body that glorifies you. God, we thank you for the word today that you are freeing us from our past that we're getting past our past. It is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray. And everybody said, Amen.